it's interesting. So many of the people that I know that, that are the most dangerous in the sense of their capacity to be dangerous are oftentimes the, the sweetest human beings that I know. Ooh. Kyle Kingsbury is another example yes. of that. Where he's like, you know, he's, he's, just, he's just a killer, but he's like the sweetest teddy bear, kind-hearted, light, like, oh, you just yeah. can't help but hug him. Right. And he has all the tools to destroy you. Yeah. You are that. Hey, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Everyone you meet every single day is fighting a battle you may know nothing about. We're all in the process of overcoming. I'm Justin Wren, and my story has been heard by millions of people through my book, my TED Talk, podcast interviews, TV shows, professional fighting, and my foundation, Fight for the Forgotten. I believe we are all overcomers if we choose to overcome. We all have the option. I've been given the opportunity to overcome childhood trauma, sexual abuse, immense bullying, depression, suicidal ideation, substance use disorder, and I am a two-time suicide survivor. We are here to have conversations with some of the greatest minds of our time. Get ready to be inspired and to receive the tools and game plan to win this fight called life. Thank you for being here, for showing up for yourself. You, me, we have overcome 100% of our darkest days. I'm not done yet, and neither are you. This is your invitation to overcome. How's your relationship with your mom? Good. Yeah? Yeah. Good. I've got to show you uh, real quick. She's on Please. the favorites, right? On the favorites, so it's easy course. to find. Yeah. First one on the favorites. Damn. What does that say? Best mom ever. That's right. <laughs> That's right. She's, uh, I, I am a mama's boy, but also um, she's just the best in a way of like, in relationships, she won't take my side. <laughs> she, she, she calls it like it is, and she'll call me out. Mm. Um, she's super positive, um, but she's an incredibly hard worker. Um, she's like a, a great businesswoman in her own right, entrepreneur, owns a lot of different properties, but growing up, um, she went through some really, really traumatic stuff and she overcame that in many ways. She became one of the strongest people in her family. I'd say like a pillar in the family where, <laughs> Let's see. She became a two-time state champion in tennis, but she was also a two-time national champion in barrel racing for horses. So she's just uh, really great. She still plays tennis now. She's a, This sounds crazy, but she's overcame MS twice. She's been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. As a child, I saw her declining, and all of a sudden, her two lesions on her spinal cord uh, disappeared. And then when I was living in the Congo with the Pygmy people, I called her on a satellite phone. And she told me the news that she was re-diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Um, she was being really heat sensitive, um, couldn't play tennis anymore. And again, her uh, MS disappeared. Um, even though she was showing all the symptoms, it's on actual MRI scans. Um, anyway, she's back to playing tennis. Uh, she was just down here at Horseshoe Bay not too long ago, uh, right outside of Austin where we are now. Yeah. And she was dominating the tournament and she won uh, a Fort Worth tennis championship too, playing against girls that are in their thirties. And uh, my mom's only 54, but she's, uh, she's active, she's healthy, she's positive. Um, and so she's always, uh, when, when, when I come, I, I was a wrestler and state champion national champion, lived at the Olympic training center. My dad, my, I remember my thumb would dislocate and I uh, did that 13 different times. Um, and my dad was saying one time, we need to take him to the ER. She's like, he's got another match. Just tape it up, <laughs> you know? Um, so she was always uh, great, but she's a competitor. 
Mm. She's a competitor. She's very driven. And so I, I think I picked up a lot of those attributes. I wonder with you, I want to adjust this guy. Sure. Make it go a little higher. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder with you, uh, you kind of, you not kind of, you completely told me this, this story of the origination of you training to become a killer. Yeah. Outside. And it's interesting. So many of the people that I know that, that are the most dangerous in the sense of their capacity to be dangerous are oftentimes the, the sweetest human beings that I know. Mm. Kyle Kingsbury is another example yes. of that. Where he's like, he's just, he's just a killer, but he's like the sweetest teddy bear, kind hearted, light, like, oh, you just yeah. can't help but hug him. Right. And he has all the tools to destroy you. Yeah. You are that. Hey, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Like, how does, how does that start for, what do you think that can, that relationship um, is? I think, uh, especially the guys at the highest level, um, they don't need to prove it. They already have, um, so what I mean by that is once you know that you can do what you can do, um, there's a lot of ego falls off. You know, you don't need to engage with people that want to size you up or uh, things like that. But I think for me, in most fighters, even in 3.4 million or 3.9 million, something like that, martial artists as kids right now in the United States, that's how many people well, pre-COVID uh, were competing martial arts they say over half of them found martial arts because they were bullied. Mm-hmm. Um, so martial artists oftentimes aren't the bully. They're the ones that have been bullied. Um, and then through that, like I did, uh, found self-confidence um, and took a while. Um, but, you know, your coaches believe in you and it's a, it's truly an art form. It's a, it's art and movement and just like yoga or uh, the acro yoga that you were doing with me before this started. But I think most martial artists that truly treat it like that, you know, what's a black belt It's just a white belt who never quit, you know, and you learn resilience, you learn uh, how to handle adversity, how to handle loss with grace instead of being a poor sport. And, you know, you get humbled on the mats a lot. Yeah. Uh, to, to get to the top. Um, if you're the best one in the room, you're in the wrong room. And so you gotta, uh, you gotta cross train. You gotta challenge yourself. You gotta overcome. You gotta be put in the worst case scenario and then decide, am I going to sink or swim? Am I going to give up or am I going to find a way out of this? And do you, you probably have thought quite a bit into the, the psyche of a bully I'd imagine. Yeah. yeah. What do you think's going on in there? I think the simplest way to put it is probably just hurt people, hurt people. And so I think most bullies have been hurt in their life. I even was with some people that were studying this and they said nine out of 10 bullies, you can actually change. Um, You can help them uh, create new behavior patterns. Um, But there's that one out of 10 that has kind of those narcissistic, almost psychotic or psychopathic uh they don't have empathy yeah um i definitely dealt with one of those uh growing up but um i think most of them feel like um they get something out of it they get a rise out of that person they feel personal power um they feel the enjoyment of making others laugh that are seeing it happen and whenever you look at the statistics in bullying that the cdc did third at risk of suicide in a bullying situation, which from ages 10 to 24 right now in the United States, the number two cause of death is suicide. And 
the number on the bullying scale, the bully's third at risk. The victim is actually second at risk. So you think about who's, who's number one. Well, it's the person that is bullied and then they act out by being a bully also. So they're conflicted on both sides. They're being bullied. And to cope with that, they become a bully themselves. And now they never feel peace, you know, Um, because they know how it feels and then they act out in that way too. And so there's just this internal conflict where they don't feel worthiness unless they take back that control and make someone else feel unworthy. Um, I think is how you would kind of explain that. But a lot of bullies have been hurt at home and they take it out at school. You know, maybe it's a dad, maybe it's an older brother. And then they're around their peers where now they're maybe bigger than or stronger than or tougher than, or maybe they're, they've been spoken down to in such a brutal way at home by dad or, or mom. And they know how bad that hurts. And that's their outlet. That's their way that they get some sort of release is by using what's been used on them. You know, one of the things I do in fighting in a, in a very different way is whenever, whenever something works, um, whenever I get hit with a certain shot or caught with a certain submission in a, in training, I'm like, Whoa, what was that? Yeah. I take notes and I'm like, I'm going to learn how to do that. And I think it's part of that survival instinct that's in us, you know? Um, and then you learn how to craft uh, and, and learn how to be dangerous or strong or, or how to fight back. Um, and, uh, in a bullying situation, like it's, it's really sad. Like our youth don't know, um, who has the most power in this situation. It's actually not the faculty. It's not the principal. It's not the disciplinaries. It's actually the bystander. The bystander has the most power in a bullying situation because nine times out of 10, or I think 87% of the time, a bystander goes from being a silent supporter because they'll, they'll think they're an innocent bystander, right? But really, they're a silent supporter. If you see it, hear it, you didn't choose it. It chose you, but now you're presented with an opportunity, or at least a choice. The, the choice is to do nothing, or the opportunity is to do something. And if you just stand up and say one thing, speak up and say, hey, that's not kind. Whether it's in school or in the corporate workplace or out and about, you know, you're at a restaurant and you see a guy talking down to his waitress or talking down to the guy behind... Uh, the cash register, you know, people are people. And just because they're wearing a name badge and they're serving you, it doesn't mean you get to talk to them however you want. And so when those kind of things happen, now I feel prompted to speak up on someone's behalf because I know 87% of the time it stops it in five seconds. And then if you have to say something a second time, it goes up to like 93, 94%. I hate to uh, harsh your mellow and like bring you back into the, you told me the, the story on the, mm-hmm. the dock that was mm-hmm. pretty uh, quite impeccably moving. I was getting all sorts of goose pimples and all the things. Yeah. And the whole time I was like, I wish we could record this. Yeah. You don't need to re-say the whole story. It. It's up to you. Yeah. The thing that I'm interested in particularly is uh, the sensation that you felt during that kind of like peak bullying experience. Ooh, yeah, we didn't hit on that. Yeah. I felt, and for 20 years... I was stuck in a thought loop when things didn't go my way or I felt like I made a mistake or um, when I was battling addiction, 
Um, I think one of the reasons I became an addict, one, there's an addict brain. I mean, that's proven by science that you have too few dopamine receptors. And whenever you have that substance, now all of a sudden it's one, it can be like, well, you know, uh, where, where's this been my whole life? But the best way to explain, I think through science and this Ted talk, I watch and other things is like, um, your brain now prioritizes it for survival. Like as a hunter gather mind, this drug, this substance now says, this is the most important thing um, for me to survive. But it all stems from a way to cope most times cope with childhood trauma, PTSD, some sort of wounding. And those woundings don't have to be brutal childhood abuse, sexual assault. Um, I, I've, I've dealt with both of those in my upbringing, but sometimes it's, it's just a feeling of unworthiness um, that, that drives you those addictions. But, but basically that thought loop that I would go on was in this moment of bullying in front of my, all the cool kids at my school. Um, I dressed up for a costume party. No one else did. When I got there, um, you know, I was greeted by my peers and the girl I had a big crush on biggest crush since elementary, middle and high school, like all throughout my I guess, academic career. And, uh, I was dressed up. No one else was, it was all pre-planned, premeditated. And my middle school crush crushed me when she said, I can't believe you thought you were good enough to come to my party. They took pictures. They laughed. Um, what did you dress up like? And why did you uh, dress up that way? Yeah. yeah. So I went, you know, I, how, how do they say that in basketball? I went hard, in the, hard paint. in the paint. There did you go. Research. I did. You're like, this is my shit. I did. It was a yeah, full court press. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I decided I would try to catch her eye. Cause I, I, I didn't know why I really got invited to the party, but I was excited. I was. And I was given an invitation that said, uh, you know, um, come to her party and it was decorated. And anyways, her dad had worked at Dr. Pepper. It's actually a big thing in Texas culture. You're going to have to get used to that. I know. I, know about, yeah, I just love Dr. Pepper. Mr. Pibb was my shit too. Oh, okay. Hey, I got down yeah. both. Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't work in, uh, <laughs> Sorry. in Texas here. No. We use Mr. Pibb for uh, carp fishing. We put Mr. Uh, Pibb on or Big Red on... Uh, Anyways, I got to do some noodling while I'm out here. Oh yeah. You know about well, noodling? Come to Oklahoma. That's yeah, where, no, that's, that's more, Vegas, that's more yeah. east. Yeah. yeah. I got a place there um, <laughs> too. So I, uh, that's a crazy sport. Yeah. Um, you call it a sport. That's good. Yeah. That's, that's very <laughs> yeah, kind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On it.com slash overcome. To save yourself some money on Onnit products, my favorite supplement line in the world. I took my Total Human today, the daily support. There's a there's a day support and a night support. I love that. It's on its best products. Also, Alpha Brain. Alpha Brain is the best of the best in the world for nootropics. I love having it anytime I take a podcast. I don't think there's been one podcast in these 35 episodes that I have not used Alpha Brain. And I love it. I feel like it helps me get into the flow of conversation faster. I feel like I get to stay there longer. I even think that I honestly ask questions that I might not have. I'm just I'm just in tune with the conversation. I'm so grateful for Alpha Brain because I have ADD. I've had it since I diagnosed with this since I was 13, and I think that this is more helpful for me personally. I'm not a doctor, anything like that, but I think it is more beneficial with no negative side effects like uh, Adderall that it used to be prescribed. 
And so I can take this and I absolutely love it. So please go to onit.com slash overcome or use the code overcome at checkout and save yourself at least 10%. But her dad worked at Dr. Pepper. It was a costume contest. Winner was going to get a prize. It was going to be a Dr. Pepper gumball machine with Dr. Pepper flavored gumballs. Uh, I thought that was awesome. And, you know, rumors at school, because I never been to her house, was that her house was decorated with like the old vintage signs of like Dr. Pepper. And they had a Dr. Pepper uh, machine in their house, a Dublin Dr. Pepper, which is a town in Texas, Dublin, Texas. We've got Paris. We've got every every big city in the world. We've got a Texas that, um, London, Texas, all, all those different things. But anyways, this was from Dublin, Texas. And real cane sugar, imperial cane sugar. Anyways, I don't even get all of the details, but she loved uh, Transformers. Everyone was talking, especially my notorious middle school bully, um, was talking about what we're going to wear. People are going to go as Avengers or Batman, Superman, different things like that. Well, I decided... I was going to go as her favorite Transformer. She loved Transformers, and her favorite was Optimus Prime. But since it was Dr. Pepper themed, uh, and they had that all in their house, me and my mom, best mom ever, yeah. uh, she really tried to help me go all out. So I saved up my allowance. I bought um, 24 packs, 12 packs. I bought everything I could find. And the reason I got this inspiration was uh, it was around Super Bowl time, and they put up those uh, those... I don't know what you call them, those action figures of, uh, oh, there's a football player that was uh, made of the Dr. Pepper-like cardboard. I don't know if you've ever seen those at a grocery store, but they'll like make figures yeah, and sure, they'll be sure, standing. Sure. And uh, sometimes they got guitars and cowboy hats. Yeah. But this one was a football player, and it just dawned on me, like, oh, I could go as that. You know, a Dr. Pepper Transformer. I'm going to go as Dr. Optimus Pepper. And uh, my mom thought it was a great idea we live in the country, so I uh, you just got some duct tape. You can fix anything with duct tape. You can make anything with duct tape. And so, um, yeah, 24-pack on my head, 12-packs on my arm, chest plate, a shield, a sword. Holy crap. Uh, and uh, I get there, and her grandmother opened the door, Mimi, and she was shocked, surprised, but was like, oh, my gosh, she's going to love this. And so I go to the backyard, but before I do, I push the button, get the Dr. Pepper out, and... Um, Walk to the backyard, door opens. I'm blasted with a couple flashes of light. My eyes adjust while I hear the sound of laughter. And yeah, um, Jennifer says, I can't believe you thought you were good enough to come to my party. And Tyler said, you're worthless. And Justin, who is my bully from third to eighth grade. Um, and I didn't did something also brutal before this. Um, he said, you should just kill yourself. And so at 13, you know, it's hard now, right? Like you're susceptible to believe the things people say about you more than you believe the things that you know about you. Um, and so at, at 13, you know, already being bullied, sitting at the lunch table by myself most times or oftentimes, being pelted in the back of the head with chocolate milk, spit wads, food or fist as kids walked by. Um, I already felt worthless, but I just hadn't verbalized it yet. And, you know, in that moment, I felt like I wasn't good enough to be in their presence or really anyone's. I felt worthless and I thought, yeah, I should just kill myself. Ran away from the party, ended up at a Dairy Queen. Um, and lots of parents were out looking for me, um, afterwards. 
And after my mom came to pick me up and I wasn't there, all the kids didn't tell everyone I ran away. They just waited until my mom came back for me. And I was uh, behind a dumpster at Dairy Queen, kind of sitting like this with my arms around my knees, just crying, weeping, and uh, taking off the cardboard and throwing it in the trash. And I remember my knees were sticky, and I don't like sticky hands, I don't like sticky arms. I don't know why, but that's like one thing that annoys me. And I don't have many pet peeves, but just like sticky hands, I got to wash them. <laughs> and uh, so dirty hands, I don't really care about. Like dirt, like I love dirt in my hands, but yeah. like sticky for some reason. Yeah. Anyways, I uh, I was just sticky all over um, from the residue of the duct tape on my shirt, my jeans, my arms. And um, Did you not like sticky before or is now sticky a thing since that incident? I think it started then maybe. Oh, I really do. Wow. I never made that connection. Fascinating. Either. Yeah, I think that's why. That would be sensible. Yeah. Wow. Thank you might you. have some work to do with stickiness. Yeah, get comfortable being sticky. Get comfortable being sticky, man. Yeah, well, that's jujitsu. <laughs> yeah. Jiu be, be uncomfortable. Be, become comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. Just embrace it or the cold, right? Yeah. And, um, or the sauna. But yeah, wow, I got some work to do. And uh, help me, man. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's man. It, thank really. you. You're helping me. Uh, and brother, it, it was crazy. They came out, went to throw away the trash at closing time, and they saw me there or heard me because they were crying and invited me in. Oh, honey, come inside. Where's your mom? And uh, told them a little bit of what happened, but it was a shame. My parents didn't know how bad I was being bullied until then. You know, they, they knew it had happened. I told them one other instance, but no kid wants to be known as the bullied kid, even by their parents, even with the best mom ever, you, 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 at least me. I would keep those things back. I've, I've become a lot more open this last 10 years, doing a lot of deep work on healing and internal stuff. But my outlet became fighting. My outlet became wrestling. It was just a few weeks after that, like maybe a month. I went to a flea market in Dallas-Fort Worth, and I'm sure they sell like stolen radios and stolen uh, stuff there. But it was uh, it was big. It was called uh, Trader's Village. And... I was going to buy a BB gun and instead I came across a used VHS tape store and I found UFC two through nine or two through 11 or something like that. And, um, yeah, I, I fell in love with the sport, but first I knew that if I could, I've never made this connection or anything, but if I could transform into one of those guys, um, a professional fighter, I wouldn't be bullied. Um, and so I wanted to do it from that moment, not even, not even watching a fight yet, just seeing them on the cover. I wanted to do that. And then when I watched it the first time, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And then I loved the chess match. And then uh, a funny story. I, I, I would hide the tapes, grew up with pretty conservative parents, uh, very open-minded, but, but conservative in, in many ways. And uh, uh, like probably not wanting a kid to watch, MMA fighting when it was being advertised as human cockfighting and banned on pay-per-view and uh, porn, porn was legal, but UFC was illegal. Something like 33%, 35% of the downloads on the internet are porn. No, yeah. that's wild. We're downloading some porn, man. Wow. Yeah. We're getting yeah. after it. So, so, <laughs> so my dad thought <laughs> we're going hard in the paint, <laughs> going hard in the paint, that's, full court press. Yeah, full court press. <laughs> I, uh, I thought it was, um, uh, my dad thought when he found my VHS tapes hidden under my bed, uh, cause I watch at night or when they were at work. And, uh, 
he, anyways, he found it one time cause I was watching it and he, he woke up and you know, the TVs whenever you used to turn them off, sorry, kids, um, you, you might not know this, but when you used to turn off TVs with like a VHS tape in it, the screen doesn't turn black right away. Right. It turns kind of like dark gray or something. And mm-hmm. the, the TV's still settling. And yeah. so he comes in, I turn off the TV real quick, but it wasn't fast enough. He knew something was in there and the v- VHS tape still like moving in there to turn off. So he, pulls it out and he finds UFC there. And then he looks under my bed, finds a stack of UFC tapes, but he thought it was porn at first <laughs> thinking it was just a stack of porn. Um, anyways, he told my mom I was going to be a fighter one day. My mom goes, no, he's never going to do that. And like a year later, I'm asking if I can box. She says, no, I asked if I could do some other stuff. And then I found a school that had wrestling. Texas didn't have it at that time really. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I found a school with two Olympic gold medalists as high school coaches and started wrestling and, she didn't want me getting hit in the head a lot. So I did that and man, it just changed my life. It gave me purpose. It gave me an outlet. It gave me goals. It gave me community, gave me tribe. It gave me a team and uh, mentors, um, encouragement from like parents, teammates, friends, people that came to watch. Um, and all of a sudden I went from literally being the most bullied kid at school uh, to then my junior and senior year, you know, when I transferred schools, um, uh, you know, I was on homecoming court and nominated for prom King and different stuff like that. Cause all of a sudden I was state champion wrestler, national champion wrestler. Um, so it was a pretty remarkable transformation uh, from the bully kid that was quiet, that had a speech impediment from kindergarten to sixth grade speech therapist. Um, I, I think in many ways wrestling saved my life. Yeah. Yeah. And and maybe you could even say that uh those turds that were bullying you formed your life. Like they were like like call them up and, and say thank you. Yeah. You know what? I, I I could do that now. I couldn't do it when I saw them about ten years later at twenty three. Mm. Um no twenty one. And you could say I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not for anything that you did, but for their experience. Right. Wow. Whenever I, whenever I, uh, and this isn't to talk down about anybody, but I saw them at 21 at a sushi restaurant. They were doing something special for one of their birthdays. And it was a lot of the same kids that were at that party. And, uh, I just got off the ultimate fighter TV show and, um, I go there with my girlfriend and we're just going to get some sushi real quick. And it's like a table, like eight of them probably like 20, 30 kids at the, I don't know how many at the party, but anyways, the main ones were there, uh, all the main ones. Um, and they pulled me over to the table and I didn't want to go, but she came and like, you know, if we knew you were going to be who you were going to be, you're going to be a professional fighter. We would have never done that to you. You know, if we knew you could kick our ass, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have bullied you like that. And I'm just like, wow, they've really evolved. Yeah. Right. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) I I literally literally went to the bathroom. I go, excuse me. I go to the bathroom and she goes, "Uh, I'll go with you. And so my girlfriend came and uh, I go, we're getting out of here. I can't handle it. She hadn't known. I, at that time I hadn't told her that even her, that story It was like a deep wound of mine. And um, she's like, why? Those are some of the friends you went to school with all this stuff. I go, they're not my friends. If you knew how they treated me, you would, you would say something to him. I would say, I want to do something to him at that time, you know? And, yeah. uh, but yeah, now I'm in a much better place. What's your relationship to, uh, that boy that was bullied now? 
mine with with myself at that age. Yeah, just yeah. Oh man, I I, I uh, I've been doing it recently, but um, yeah, tell myself that you know, and I know this sounds it's cliche get, or goofy or yeah, yeah about to get gushy. a little fruity here on the fruity. online podcast. There we guys. go. Get ready. Yeah. Hey, well, you're a handsome man. It's <laughs> like, pulling it out of me. I'm handsome, and Justin <laughs> can kill all of you. So that's yeah. <laughs> how we could go uh, fruity. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, I, I I tell myself sometimes in the mirror. Uh, my partner now like says, you need to tell yourself that you love yourself. And that's been the hardest thing I've ever done in my life is come to self-love. Um, I even got pretty gifted um, through a nonprofit and through compassion for others. Yeah, that, that thing I could thank them for is like, thank you for putting something in me that rose up, that would rise up and say, this isn't okay to happen to others. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I still have a hard time defending myself, but I defend others quickly. Um, and, cause I know what it feels like, but I try to tell myself looking in the mirror, like, you know what? I love you. And, uh, and she's like, no, say your name. And so I'm like, I love you, Justin. She say your full name. I'm like, okay, I love you, Justin Christopher Wren. And then I try to tell myself three things. I am ambitious or I am compassionate. I am ambitious and I'm resilient. And so I lead with compassion. Love's at the tip of my spear. I'm ambitious. I have big dreams and goals for myself and others but I'm also resilient. And, uh, I think with resilience, you know, if love's at the tip of my spear, it would probably be compassion or understanding or empathy. Um, that is my shield. Mm. Um, yeah, I'd say empathy, understanding, and even, even truth. Like this is what they're saying out of their pain, out of their hurt. This is what they're doing. But, um, but my truth is, uh, I'm not that, that guy that has to say to myself because I took that on a self-talk as my own self-worth is whenever I fuck up, I would say, you know, you're worthless. I mean, own self-talk, you're not good enough. Maybe you should kill yourself. And, uh, I contemplated it. Um, I mean, I know this sounds a little cheesy, but I just realized it. Um, after I did Joe Rogan's podcast, uh, uh less than a week ago, um, that afterwards I was like, you know what? I'm a, I think I told Joe that. Yeah, I did. And his team, I go, I never thought of this, but I mean, my mom basically survived or, or he got healed from, or just whatever, uh, from MS twice. And I know some cancer survivors. I'm like, I'm a two time suicide survivor, mm. um, which is pretty crazy to think about. Like I, I, I'm very thankful. I guess I wasn't successful, but this last time, like doctors say like I a hundred percent took a heart stopping cocktail. I shouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. And, um, anyways, so 2020 went from being the worst six months of my life to the first six months to being the best six months of my life at the end. And I think it was cause I rediscovered who I was. I would say I had a spiritual rebirth, um, for sure. And I found tribe, you know, I, I found my second family in the forest with the pygmies at 23 years old. And then I got sick a lot. You know, I've been going there off and on the last 10 years. Uh, and, but, you know, almost lost my life to some sicknesses. So now I try to be smart. I try to go less often than, you know, living in the rainforest for a full year at a time, close to two years now in total. And like sleeping on the dirt as my bed and around a fire as a blanket. You know, I love that. I come alive in the forest. I feel so in tune or grounded and just deep, meaningful relationships with others, but even nature. And I love it and came back here and 
was battling sickness, went through a divorce, went through all this stuff. And I think, uh, I think it's so easy in our culture to isolate ourselves. Um, you know, we have these big structures and houses yeah. and TVs and screens of like entertainment, but really it's a lot of it can be just numbing, sedating, suppressing. And the further up you get the hierarchy, the more you're winning the game, the more dis- you distance yourselves from, yeah. from the tribe. Oh man. And that, that saying, right. Um, if you get wealthier, whatever it is, don't, don't build a bigger wall or a higher wall, build a longer table. Mm, right. I'm with that. And dude, that's not our culture. Our culture is build a higher wall, a compound. Yeah. You know, don't, don't extend your table. Yeah. Maybe even shorten it. Cause you can't trust anybody. You can't trust Everyone them. just wants something from you. Yeah. It's like, no, like I feel like uh, wealth is like manure. <laughs> and, uh, and if you just have it in one pile, like it's going to start to stink. But if you spread it out, and whether that's in investments or whether that's whether that's uh, with people or um, things you trust or things you're passionate about, you you give a little here, you give a little there, like that's, that's whenever good. stuff starts happening. You know, Damn. trees start growing, fruit starts producing, um, is whenever you you share it, whenever you give. Like it is truly more blessed to give than to receive, even in fighting. You want to give it more than you receive it, um, but in life, fight for the forgotten dot org. You can go check out Fight for the Forgotten, the foundation that I started. It is my passion project. It is something that I love so much because of the people we get to help. We get to help the pygmy tribe who adopted me in help themselves. We say opportunity is greater than charity. Charity can be great, but opportunity is just always better. That's why we've drilled something like 80 water wells already, providing over 30,000 people clean water, We've started sustainable farms, bought back over 3,000 acres of land for the people who originally owned it, put it in their name. We built 32 homes, and now we're about to start a health center, a school, and a marketplace. They're going to have a maternity ward, a pediatrics unit, and a dental suite. You can join the Fight for the Forgotten Fight Club at fightfortheforgotten.org. We would love, love, love to invite you on this journey to join this fight arm in arm with us. Our fight club, it's a monthly giving club. You can give $5 or more a month and that empowers us to empower people. Thank you for being on this journey with us. I invite you to come along for the ride. It's been absolutely epic, putting love and compassion in action and fighting for people. Fightfortheforgotten.org, join our fight club. I wonder... Are you open to, to talking? Obviously, you are. You wanted to mention the suicide stuff. Are you open to yeah, talking about those sure. things? Absolutely. So we were talking about uh, suicide and, and generally the relationship that Western culture has with death. There's like an obligatory sadness mm-hmm. that we've been indoctrinated with. Not right. to say that death is or is not sad, but right. that's, you know, you wear black and you hunch over and you mourn and you carry the thing and it's very, they, it's just, this is sad. Like that's the, that's mm-hmm. the story. And you could maybe go to another culture where maybe it's like, Oh, they graduated. Yeah. You know, they, they've, they, you know, they passed this Bardo. This wasn't, you know, they were, they were, it's like they got jumped from third grade to, to freshman year. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, cool. Like he's super smart. He didn't need to be here. Right. You know, so we could run that story as well and be like, okay, perfect. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different operating systems that we could run on a relationship right. with, with life and death. Yeah. And so someone uh, brought up that, to be willing to end one's life, which I'm, I'm like kind of treading on thin ice with this and I'm, and no, I'm you're good. tempted to not in relation to you just in general, right. just to, to like re speak it. But they, they, 
said, and I found it interesting that to be willing to end one's life is actually quite courageous mm. because most people would be too scared. Yeah. And it was an interesting thing to be at that point and actually be, have the follow through and be willing to, to make that step. That's something that I, you know, I don't know anything about. I don't, it's like, it's, it's uncharted territory for a lot of people. Right. It is, but sadly it's becoming more and more common. There was an article in CNN. And I'm not saying that it is courageous. She no, no, just no, had no, an interesting no, I, I've got, idea. I've got something on that. Yeah. And I was just I'll like, huh. that. it was like a head scratcher for me of like, okay, I can, I'm going to stew on this. Yeah. I'll get to that. Um, but in Japan, I don't know if it was December or November, but CNN said that more Japanese took their lives in COVID. one month uh, than all of COVID in 2020. Yeah, man. And um, so in some ways I think it is courageous, um, but in other ways I think it can be quite cowardly too um, because I've done it twice. I tr- tried twice. Um, but like with my friend Brian and my friend Marquise, um, you know, I was, I shared the eulogy at my friend Brian Sykes um, funeral and I would never call that man a coward. He was um, one of the best men I've ever known. And, uh, you know, he left behind four boys and a mom, Gina. And, uh, even during COVID and COVID cautious people will, will definitely dislike me saying this, but people were so moved by who he was, um, because he was a coach of coaches. He was the guy that took the little league peewee team always to the super bowl. And he was the best coach that there's ever been in peewee football, but he was also, a uh, football player at Iowa State University. He had concussions in middle school, concussions in high school, concussions in college. He started fighting. He was my training partner. Um, I was his coach in his MMA fights. Uh, he got knocked out too many times. Um, great grappler. But uh, he had CTE. And uh, his death certificate says uh, he died due to complications of CTE. And now, even in his death, because um, he wasn't himself, forgetting stuff you would have fits of anger that wasn't him he was a teddy bear he was the guy that going to you know the ski hill in uh copper uh colorado or summit county you know he would stop and or he'd recognize someone's need a homeless person's need he'd stop at mcdonald's he'd get them food because he didn't give them money he'd give them food and his kids or people would be like you know what like we got to get there dad what are you doing why are we stopping we already ate breakfast and, you know, he'd stop by and give the homeless person food and that person would light up like, oh my gosh, I was so hungry. You know, he was so sensitive. He could recognize someone's need and doctors, scientists, tech guys, cause he was one of the most brilliant guys in the world. He was my first sponsor. Cause if he saw something that wasn't right or that he could make better, he would do it. Hmm. He did it with his own shampoo. He did it with his own soap. Uh, he did it with uh, his own it was called cardio force. It's still online. And we're trying to see if we could start that back up and do it. Well, it was before all when, when all the grapplers would use NO explode. I don't know if you remember that sure, where of course. it would just pump your muscles up. Um, well, grapplers can't use that. Cause if you start trying to choke someone, your forearms fill up and your grip disappears and you can't grapple for more than a few minutes. And so we developed a better product. Uh, he was very in line with like, um, kind of the on it style or just the wellness movement that's happening now, but he was ahead of his time. And uh, anyways, we're trying to see if we can, if I can help uh, bring that back and it be a support for the family. 
and even um, uh, give to CTE, like a CTE charity or something. Um, but his brain right now, even in his death, he's helping people because his brain, he decided to donate to this place in Boston. That's the best CTE research center in the world. And um, so in many ways, he was courageous in an act of that. But I, I guess I would say it for myself. And and you, we, you know, we went to Brendan Shep's comedy show last night with Aubrey Marcus and my friend Brigham. And I told you guys right, right before I came that I found out that my uh, friend uh, took his life. I got to go to his funeral um, tomorrow. Uh, I mean, I got to leave for his funeral and be there for his family. His parents are like my second parents for the last like eight or nine years. They've been my rock. They're the rock of my foundation, my nonprofit. They run it for me. Um, I'm the founder and president, but they're they're the operations manager and the the um, executive director. And um, suicide's really hard for people to understand. For me, you know, I'm never going to make that decision. I've decided now. I'm here to stay. Hmm. And uh, but um, because when I woke up on April 6, 2020, it was like. I had this sense of knowing in my spirit that you're not done yet. And, but, um, for Marquise, he was waiting for a fourth transplant, a fourth kidney transplant, a fourth kidney transplant. And he was suffering. And, um, so I guess for me, how I would, how I explain it, try to explain it is when I saw the twin towers get hit, um, in ninth grade, I remember someone jumped out of the building and they were above where the plane made impact, right? And so the jet fuel's in there, the fire's in there, the smoke is smoldering up to them, and they're suffocating. They probably maybe ran by the elevator, knew they couldn't use that. Maybe they looked for the staircase, and they opened it up, and it's all smoke and fire. And then they find a window. And it's not a good option, but it, at that moment, probably seemed like the better option. And... um and I'm just glad that I made it through it to realize that the best option for me is to be here and to not not leave a legacy of hurt of the people that loved me, cared about me, yeah. um, to not choose that destiny um, because you don't know what beautiful things can happen. I think of my friend Nick Santanastasso. He was supposed to be aborted because they thought he was going to be born with his organs outside his body. Now he's one of the main speakers for Tony Robbins. and Yeah, I know him. You know Nick? Oh, wait. No, uh, I'm thinking a different Nick. Nick okay. I'm thinking Nick. I forget oh, his yeah. last, uh, last Vol, name. Vojvik, or uh, he's Australian. He's, he's in, got he's no in, arms. He's, he, yes. Or no legs. Yeah. How do you say no his arms. last name? It's a, it starts with a V. We've been going and back and forth like on a, podcast stuff. I went to Tony Robbins with, yeah. well, he was actually speaking. Yeah. But anyways, we we, yeah. we hung out at Tony Robbins. We can go Nick back and forth v, about the podcast. And then it's got a J-E-C at the interesting end. interesting name. Yeah. I think yeah. it's like Czech or something. But he... um. He's married. He has his kids. Yeah. He's got no arms, no legs. Yeah, he's balling. Uh, yeah, he's yeah, got he's like a big and, fat Rolex. He's, yeah, he's, he's so, like, hey. Uh, <laughs> so Nick, Nick Santanastasso, though, he's workout buddies with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. He's, yeah, <laughs> um, he's living the life. He's got a beautiful girlfriend. He, him and I have traveled together. We love each other. And uh, but when I think about that, like all the challenges he had to overcome, yeah. bullying, thoughts of killing himself, but not knowing how he could do it because he just got one arm and one finger. No, no legs and missing an arm. And, uh, you know, he turned that around to be one of the most inspirational guys in the world. Like first he made, made it famous on vine cause he would dress up like a zombie and, uh, and, and go into grocery stores 
And then he would like just chase someone with, with, uh, I've never shared that story, but he would just freak people out. Cause all of a sudden here's a guy with no legs and missing arm and yeah. he's got like fangs and blood all over him, like chasing these people. And, but he like learned how to use comedy as a way to deal with grief and loss or just who he was. And, um, then after that he became super inspirational and it's like, we can, we can turn our darkest times into someone else's brightest moments, or we can, Every with every lesson comes, I think, a blessing. And uh, so, what what are we going to learn from me when I attempted suicide in Playa del Carmen in Mexico, April fifth? That was my darkest night of the soul. Um, April fourth and fifth, um, I actually did it in the daytime, around noon or two p.m. I took five, five oxy eighties, which are the strongest milligrams there are. Most time they give people five milligrams or ten milligrams. Five eighties is equivalent to eighty fives, I think. Um, so almost three prescription bottles of the five milligrams. Wow. And um, then I took five Xanax two milligrams, which I think are the strongest on the market. Those like bars or barbiturates, and um, drank like half or three quarters of a bottle of tequila, and I snorted the biggest, almost like a sharpie size line of cocaine. Wow. Yeah. And um, but I crushed up this crystal that I thought was Molly or MDMA. And it was like the last thing I could physically do before all my motor skills were slowing. If I would have tried to talk, it would, there would have been nothing that nothing that you could have heard. Um, and everything was getting dark. Everything was getting cold. Everything was getting quiet. And something in me, God, source, creator, uh, my intuition that said, crush up that crystal and snort it. And so I did. And it was the worst chemical after having cocaine, which numbs your nose. I all of a sudden have the worst chemical burn feeling I've ever felt in my life in my nostrils. And I did on both sides, just took the whole crystal and I was okay with death. I I flew down to Mexico to die. It was one, one, two pilots, four flight attendants and me COVID had shut all the flights down. And this might've been one of the last flights out. And, um, some reason they took the flight I thought it was very like symbolic. I didn't want to take a lot of people on the journey with me and I didn't want my family to find me. And, um, so, uh, anyways, I crushed up that crystal and the last thing I remember is falling back and, uh, my legs were on the side of the bed to where my feet were almost on the ground and, uh, my back laid back and I was in my clothes and I just passed out. It was like this hum. I can't really explain it, but it was like just buzz. It was in my ears and, I knew I was dying. I knew I was dead or going to die. And, uh, um, then I woke up the next morning at 6 a.m. So this is like noon or 2 p.m. And I wake up the next morning to this gasp, like, <gasps> you know, and I, I instantly thought like, fuck, I'm alive. Shit, I'm still here. Um, because it wasn't like a half-ass attempt. This was like for real. And um, I get up and my heart's beating like crazy. Feels like it's gonna beat out of my chest. Have a headache, but something in me just said, "Get in the water." I was on the beach, and so, I mean, you could throw a rock and hit the ocean water, and toss a rock. You know, it was so so close, and put my feet right in the sand, and took off my shirt, and just walked right into the water. And I was sitting there, and um, sun hadn't risen yet, and um, I'm letting the water come over me. I feel so much shame, such an incredible amount of shame. And I, it's like every wave that came over me was shame, more shame, more shame, more shame. 
But then as I thought, you know, I'm thankful for this beating crazy fast beating heart in my chest. One of the, one of the things the pygmies would pray, they've experienced, experienced a lot of loss, but they would thank God every day that they're alive. You know, thank you that I get to live today. Um, Cause many won't wake up and, uh, or we've lost many people. And so in that moment, like I'd said that prayer maybe before and I wasn't much of a praying guy, but I was like, wow, thank you for this beating heart in my chest. And I just remember breathing. I said, thank you for the breath. It's in my lungs. Hmm. And in that moment, it felt like it, 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 it switched from like this shamefulness washing over me to like, it was like gratefulness that just whoosh came right over me and like shamefulness kind of left. You know how like waves come over you and then they kind of go back out Hmm. and come back over you. It was almost like more, more gratefulness was coming over me and a little bit more shame was leaving. I just had my eyes closed and I felt this whisper in my spirit or soul that said, open your eyes. And so I did. And right when I did, bro, right on the horizon, the sun appeared. Like it just popped up over the horizon and the sun started to rise. And that's when I felt, you're not done yet. This isn't your destiny. This isn't your legacy. And I watched creator or whatever you want to believe, like paint the most epic, beautiful, incredible, majestic sunrise I've ever seen in my life. It was a work of art. It was a masterpiece. And I remember crying, literally just sitting there crying in the water, watching this every color. I'm I'm partially colorblind, but I saw more colors than I've ever seen in my life. Mm. And um, I was like, wow, this happens every day, twice a day. (laughs) <laughs> like I've never stopped to appreciate it like this. Um, I mean, I've taken pictures and stuff and thought, Oh, that's dope. But like to really think like, wow, I am so grateful for that. I remember thinking everything I could think of to be grateful for. I'm thankful for the warmth that comes from that. I'm thankful for these cool healing waters. I'm thankful for those clouds, <laughs> you know, none of them are the same. And I'm thankful for these colors and I'm thankful for that bird flying by and I'm thankful for, you know, having the privileged life that I've had because I live in the West. I live in America. And if you live in America, you're pretty damn rich most of the time. Even our people in Austin that are living in the homeless, you know, community under the bridges, like they have clean water to drink. Yeah. Um, they probably got a coat and stuff like that. The pygmy people that I lived with, I never met one that owned a blanket. The fire is their blanket for real. And they only eat what they get for the day, you know, Um, whether it's hunting, gathering or being enslaved. And I've been to funerals of kids under the age of five, five of them. I helped dig their graves. And it's just like, I got, I don't know how I saw that experience that saw 73 water wells be drilled over 60,000 people get clean water. 1,651 people transition out of actual slavery and into freedom, 3,000 acres of land given back. And then I was just thinking, I'm like, how was I so selfish or how was I so confused or how was I so dark that I literally stopped counting my blessings, that I literally somehow became ungrateful, that I literally somehow thought the best solution or answer was to take my own life whenever the poorest people in the world that I know and anthropologists call the most oppressed people 
Like they have some of the happiest times. Like wealth is only one bank account. You know, there's all these other accounts too. Friendships, like health, um, movement, you know, nutrition, food. Like we can be rich in so many different ways. It doesn't just have to be finances. And, and, And oftentimes they have more wealth than we do here because they have each other and they have deep relationships with each other, with nature, with God, with everyone around them. They support each other. They don't turn their backs on them. They don't neglect them. They don't reject them. They, they, they truly are like with each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, so you were a person that essentially, I would say that place that you were at, it's like you were touching a void in a sense. And that's it. There's even like a French term. I think that's something along the lines of touching the void, which is a sensation that many people get. I get at least if you are, you know, say on a side of a bridge, the sensation of like, Oh, what would it be like to jump, mm-hmm. you know, or you drive it along road and be like, what would it be just to huck this thing off of here? Wow. You ever get that kind of sensation? Yeah. 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 You know, not with any kind of like, you know, Oh, I'm going to do this, but it's like, what would that be like? I think yeah. it's a very natural human thing. Right. You know, but I, I kind of have a, the main, the second, the main question is is coming. Two questions. I wonder what your thoughts are on Western culture's relationship to life, because there's a lot of people living that it's like it doesn't really seem like much of a life. Mm. And it's just like, well, they're laying there, they're breathing. You know, we got all the things hooked up. Like, there's still technically consciousness is in the body. Mm. You know, we're we're winning. It's okay. You know, and maybe that's maybe that's right. Uh, you know, but our relationship to life is interesting, and then. I notice in myself and you can, you know, obviously here I'm like tiptoeing around, like how much death can we talk about? Can I say the word suicide? You know, cause I really want to understand like where you were at while you were in that touching yeah. the void place that very few people know about, mm. you know? So it's like, can I ask where sure. your mind was at in that moment of I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. Yeah. I felt like a failure and I was in that thought loop that became my own self-talk. You're, not good enough. You're worthless. You should kill yourself. The reason I was sucked down into that was I got a divorce. And for me growing up, I wanted to be pretty much the only one in my family to not get a divorce because I saw a lot of pain and destruction and hurt feelings and people, you know, growing up with parents that just talk shit about the other parent and um, just saw a lot of toxic things. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to be different. I'm going to have a marriage and it's going to be a successful one. Well, it wasn't. And, um, and I took pretty much all the blame for it. I mean, I just, I, I mean, I know it's two and, and we decided together that we'd be healthier, not together. And it was actually the silver lining was, it was such a kind, that's what our friends said. Our family said that was the kindest divorce, kindest, quickest. You guys supported each other. You helped each other. You went through counseling for a divorce. And, but still I had this feeling of such utter failure that I couldn't make it a success. Then when I relapsed, that's when everything went super dark. That was from the first suicide attempt too, was I was stuck in addiction and couldn't escape. And almost that near life or near death experience kind of shook me up in a way. And the right people were in my life at the right time that got me help. And 33 at 33. So that was at 23, the first attempt and the second attempt. Addiction. Was there there not a real sensation? Cause I've heard there's a sensation of, of relief, almost like the day of the person would be happy. Potentially, I just, this is, I don't know anything about The day about of these. suicide, you're happy or the day after? 
the day of, and because, and this is, I'm way because out of my, you know. because you've accepted, you're like, ah, oh, I'm, mm. I'm free. Uh, that wasn't my case, my scenario. I felt that the day I was, a uh, had the shame, but then it became gratitude. Um, the day after yeah, the day before was the darkest mental place I'd ever been. There was um, no sensation of, of relief. I'm about to let go dear, or, dear, or feeling empowered. Dear, uh, I mean, during it, I knew I was in control during it. I knew it was a conscious decision during it. I knew this is my this is my choice. This is the way I'm going out. But I think like in a fight, I felt like I was in a, I've never been submitted in a fight, but I have in the training room and, um, you know, you tap and they let go. Um, my addiction was like, I was tapping and I was tapping and I was tapping and I was trying to get it to stop, but it just wouldn't, even though I'm the one that has to consume the drug, Right. But the addict mind, like you lose the power of control once that substance hits your body yeah. and an actual allergy goes off and allergies is an abnormal reaction to a common substance, right? Some people can't have peanuts. I can't have drugs and, um, and at least oxy for sure. And even weed would lead me back to oxy. I, I saw it as a, a thing that would stop me from going to oxy, but now going through rehab, I'm like, oh shit, every time I ever had weed, I went back to oxy. Yeah. Maybe it maybe it prolonged the process, delayed it for a bit, but it always ended up right back at it. Do you think it was you that was choosing to end your life? Or do you think there could be some consciousness of um, pharmaceutical oxy or some other? I mean, oh, a weird I, think, question. I think I get, I, I definitely a hundred percent get more suicidal whenever I'm on oxy. Mm. Like suicidal ideation isn't something that's in me when I'm not using. Um, so I've never really made that correlation, but I do know that that addiction was going to kill me one way or the other. And so I think the empowerment part would be that I wasn't going to die due at, at an old age in a, maybe a trailer park or something like that. Cause I wasted all my money and I can only spend it on drugs hmm. and I'm dying of an old age with a old liver that's all banged up and bruised and ready to quit. Like I know I'm not going to escape this thing. I mean, it felt like I was in, a string of hold I couldn't stop. Like I'm going to die from this one way or the other. Is it going to be later or now? Now or later. So I think I just decided now. And uh, so I think there was some power control in that moment that I've never really talked about or dug up, but um, I just didn't want to die from it in a way where I had hurt more people than helped. Meaning had, you know, in my first suicide attempt at 23, I missed my best friend's wedding. I was a, I was a missing person for, for eight weeks basically. And, uh, uh, yeah, I was supposed to be helping people train for world championship fights. I was supposed to be training for my own. It was a big fight and, uh, I got kicked off my fight team and then I got a call that or it was a voicemail and I was basically not functioning for eight weeks. I was in some drug house in Colorado and woke up with a guy giving me a bottle of water and I was just remember crushing it saying, he was saying, Justin, you got to drink, you got to drink. And I look at this guy and I have no clue who he is. I'm like, who are you? He goes, who am I? You can eat my food, using my drugs, sleeping on my couch for two weeks. What do you mean? Who am I? Wow. And that, that was a wake up call. And then I got the voicemail when I hitchhiked with a truck driver back to Denver. And, uh, I mean, that's a pretty low point. And, um, and on my voicemail, my phone got charged 
my best friend at the time, who's a great, great guy. He said, um, he said, I can't believe you missed my wedding. I can't believe my best man didn't show up. And, uh, like in those moments, like I know that I'm a good friend. I am like, that's who I am. I'm a good friend to people. But whenever addiction or even depression like seeps in, like I'm not who I'm supposed to be, or I'm not who I can be, or I'm not who I'm not optimal, you know, and I'm not, and I'm not normal. I'm like, I'm like below average. I'm like, and I, I, I get that we're allowed to have these ebbs and flows, like, like ups and downs and, but I wouldn't handle those downs well. And so I think, uh, I don't know where I was going with that except for, uh, yeah, I mean, whenever I am in active addiction, um, and I don't know, I went to, to, I believe there's an addict brain and maybe once an addict, always an addict, but I'm also convinced that I'm not going to have to sit and defeat for the rest of my life with this thing, that there are ways to overcome it. And there are ways to live in freedom, to walk in freedom, to be around people that, you know, I have eight months sober, but, um, you know, I was able to do a Buffalo trace, uh, whiskey tasting with Joe Rogan on a show last week. And that was pretty freeing. You know, I had the sample bottle sent to me. I sat down with him and drinking wasn't really necessarily my drug of choice, but, um, but to be able to be there and about to share all about my addiction and rehab for 90 days. But before we start, I'm giving him a sample, pick your barrel, you know, we're going to auction it off. You're going to get some bottles and we're going to auction this off and it's going to raise money for us. We've already raised over $50,000 and, uh, you know, I'm not going to allow opportunities. I'm not going to neglect opportunities like those, turn them down whenever it can be used for good. You know, if, if, if triggers are truly real, like that's a slippery slope. Like I just had two friends tragically lost because of suicide, things that I dealt with that I could have done, but I'm not going to let that turn me back to using because if I said that triggered me, um, then anything can be a trigger. Like I could, I could go to the gas station cause they sell beer. That's a trigger. Or I'm at a party and they're serving wine. I'm at someone's wedding. I have to deny myself. I see a lot of people in some of these 12 step programs, which I think are fantastic. But also I see is some of them being disempowering where they, um, they can't go to family Christmas or Thanksgiving cause someone's going to be drinking there. And so they put their problem on somebody else. And it's like, man, that, if that's true, you got to move up to like to Greenland and, and, and go to an ice cap. And then if a, an Eskimo drives by and, you know, he's got a bottle of whiskey, then it's his, his fault that he triggered you because an Eskimo had some whiskey or something like you just can always find someone else to blame Yeah, or some situation. If you were with yourself the following day, when you were looking at the sunrise, if that self could step back the day before and be with self that was crushing all the things up, what would you do? What would that self do? Might be a weird question. No, it's not weird. The instant thing that came up, I, I thought wouldn't make sense, but I'll, I'll just I'll just shoot from the hip. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for, for there's a lot more options um, than that on that question. Yeah. <laughs> no, I th- I think um, I think I would say I I I I honestly don't think I'd change a thing. Mm. I'd still do it and um and hope and pray that I still came out on the other side because now I have so much more of a deeper appreciation of life. There has not been one day 
since April 5th of 2020 that I didn't take the prayer that I see the pygmies say and lived with and saw them do it often, and I might have mumbled it, but now I mean it. Like it's in my core. It's deep within my being. It is stitched into my veins. It is weaved into me. It is etched in stone or in flesh. It's it's a tattoo. Honestly, that's that's this tattoo that you saw earlier. Um, that's the water. That's me having that spiritual rebirth in the water. Oh shit! And um, when I was in Sedona with Aubrey, we did breath work and. Anahata is the name, is that right? Anahata, yeah. We drew these oracle card things, and I've never seen those before. Oracle yeah. cards, tarot cards, I've never seen them. And, uh, <laughs> and I joined Fit for Service and didn't really know the super amazing tribe that I was stepping into. And, um, you know, I draw a card, and they said set an intention and write a word down. Well, I wrote down love, you know. Write down something you want to feel or, or intention. And I said loved with a D on it. Hmm. I want to feel loved. Yeah, I've written that one. Um, yeah, and I draw this card, and it just so happened to be the only one in the deck that was called the Goddess of Water. And uh, water's been the gift that I've tried to give to people that need it the most. And uh, it was super touching me. For some reason, I kind of got emotional when I got that card. And I'm like, what, what the hell am I doing? Why am I getting emotional at a, a card? Like, uh, it just says Goddess of Water. And, um, being a pansy. Yeah, I know. Right. Like getting a little fruity. <laughs> a little fruity. <laughs> and, and I, uh, I, I sit there and, and we lay back and we do this breath work and I've done some yoga breathing and Wim Hof breathing, but not for three hours. Yeah. I mean, they start with a 30 minute kind of intro and a 30 minute kind of whatever integration. So I guess there's only two hours of breathing, but two hours of breathing is a lot, a lot of breathing, even oh, though we yeah. do it all the time. But, uh, you know, it was intentional. It was incredible. It was the sun, beautiful on Bear Mountain there, uh, the back of Aubrey's land. And uh, Aubrey came down and he put his hand on my chest and he said, what is this armor over your heart? Can you let it drop? Can you let yourself be fully seen and known? Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, wow. You know, I feel like I'm pretty open and transparent, at least now, lately. Um, but in that moment, I was like, wow. And just kind of visualizing the my my heart and seeing armor drop into the dirt when he said that I was like, Ooh, okay, I'll go with that. We start breathing for like 30 minutes more or something like that. Music's going and it's guided. And all of a sudden I start having a vision and at the Olympic training center, we'd go through visualization drills and we'd see the match in our mind a hundred times before we go out and do it. Oftentimes it's best case scenario. Sometimes it's worst case scenario. But this wasn't anything I tried to conjure up. I didn't, and I had experimented with psychedelics before. This was not like that. This was so vivid, so real, so apparent. It was like a movie in my mind. Mm. And I saw the ocean forming. I saw these storm clouds, and the ocean was there. And I, I saw a heart, an anatomically correct human heart of flesh, in the top of the water. It's these dark storm clouds and dark water and the heart starts to sink and it starts to sink in the ocean. And, um, I instantly just know like that's, that's where I was on April 5th, like that sinking heart, that darkened, desperate, dying, drowning heart. And it's sinking to the ocean floor. And right before 
it hits. It's kind of crazy. One of the facilitators um, come by and they spritz this water on me. Right when they spritz that water and the vision, like the heart's almost about to hit the ocean floor. And all of a sudden at the top of the ocean, at the where the water is, it, it's uh, top of the water. It's like a, it's like this golden, gorgeous swirl of like this water that's like diving. It's like on a mission and it's coming right down towards my heart. And right before it hits the ocean floor, this thing swoops it up, swirls around it and starts to swim back up to the, to the surface of the water. It, it breaks the water. It's about two or three feet above the water and this golden, gorgeous healing water is circling and swirling around my heart and all of a sudden it switches and it turns into this flame. And I know it's this healing water and there's this flame of love. And then it turns into this white orb, just this gorgeous white, bright light. And then it switches again and it turns into this almost like goldsmithing or jewelry making gold of like liquid gold over this heart. And it starts to solidify and I raise my hands and I don't know why I did that, but I raise my hands up on my back and um, one of the facilitators comes and they grab my wrist and they pull my wrist above my head, kind of like you were doing when you were working on me. <laughs> and uh, when they, when they bring that back, it feels like something was placed like a actual medicine ball was placed in my hands, like this ball of energy or this ball of weight that was placed in my hands. I thought they did my eyes are closed and I pull my hands back up because of the weight. I pull my hands back up above my head. Well, I'm there and I try to push with my right hand to the left and my left hand goes out to the left. Mm. Like something's actually there. Mm. And I push with my left hand to the right and my right hand goes out to the right. I'm like, what is this? One of the other facilitators, maybe the same person sees me looking weird and pushing my hands around and they come and they grab the tops of my hands and they put my hands over each other. And it was like these facilitators like knew what was happening because it was so in line with my, my vision that this heart is starting to solidify into gold and, and they take my heart and they start, or they take my hands and they start putting it down right on top of my heart. And when that happened, man, it felt like warm honey, this like warmth, this love, this, this sticky, (laughs) This stickiness was in my chest and my heart. And it wasn't a bad sticky. Yeah. It was, uh, it was healing. It was soothing. And um, and I just knew in that moment I started to cry. Like, uh, like tears just kind of fell down the side of my face. And still on my back, still trying to breathe. Oh, and I even forgot that as that heart was sinking, I literally felt like a, a, a tightening in my chest, like almost like a compression, like if you're diving. And then whenever it started swimming back up, it like lifted. I mean, it was just, it was just so crazy that this just happened in my psyche or in my mind or in my soul. And man, whenever that happened, I was just like, I remember I went up to talk to Aubrey and Vailana afterwards. And I told him, told him about the suicide attempt, told him about the vision, told him about the rebirth that I had in the waters down there. That day I decided to get this tattoo on the side of my leg. And, um, that represents that April 6th moment. And, uh, I mean, I was like tearing up with Aubrey telling him, he just gave me the biggest hug. And I was like, man, I'm here to stay. I'm here to stay. And like, I got to love myself. I've been good at loving people. Sure. I've been terrible at loving myself. 
Yeah, you seem like you really crushed the love and people game. Hey, thanks. <laughs> I want I want to. No, I appreciate that. Like it's it's hard to accept that sometimes, but I've started realizing like I've always loved people better than I love myself. Why do you think that is? I th- I mean it's easy to point back to that moment as uh as a kid being bullied, but it's Why would it be so easy to love people? Oh no, no. I thought you meant uh to not love myself. Why would so it be easy, easy to love people though? But so you're very effective with loving people. Yeah. I don't think I was until until after I broke free of the addiction. I, I, I think I was good at cutting up and joking and making people laugh sometimes. Yeah. Uh because that was my way to cope with um or try to make friends. So I went from being laughed at to then ninth and tenth grade I went to a school. They transferred me after eighth grade after that bullying moment to a new school. And I tried to become the class clown. Well, that backfired. I actually got bullied some more there too. Um, but I stood up to the bullies and they were bullying a kid with special needs and ended up hitting the guy and breaking his sternum. And I think that's really the first time I ever really hit somebody. Mm. But I think it was all that rage, all that built up, pent up anger. And I guess I was destined to be a pro fighter. Yeah, I remember I wanted to hit him in the face, but I didn't want it, the teachers to see stuff like that. They're bullying a kid right by the urinal. He was like literally crouched down there, slapping him in the back, backhanding him in the forehead saying, you're so stupid. You're so stupid. And I just like, I just raged. I threw a big punch, thought I was going to hit him in the face, but re aimed at the chest and you know, an ambulance came for him and police came for me. And so I think once I found fighting and wrestling, I started encouraging people. I think I'm a natural encourager. I'm definitely on that five love language thing. Like first thing is at words of affirmation. Second thing is uh, physical touch. Mm. The fit for service tribe has nicknamed me the uh, hug shaman. Okay. Kind of like a Kyle, Kyle Kingsbury type. Like you're very, yeah, you're come, very, come get a big I get, hug. I get that from you. Yeah. And so, uh, but you exude an immense amount of love and authenticity and wow. kindness. And like, that's what I get from you. Thanks bro. I heard this quote that, actually kind of led me to the Congo, but it started at a children's hospital. Uh, I was kicked off my fight team because of my addiction and they wanted me to go get help. Kind of neglected that, but I got my act together for a little bit and I started working at a children's hospital and that changed my perspective. You know, wheeling around kids, yeah. you know, wheelchair cause they have cancer They're five years old, 10 years old. Um, and then Nine months later, like my fight team's coming back in and they're taking a tour of the children's hospital, visiting the kids with their UFC belts, champions, you know. And they're like, wow, Justin, we want, we want you back on the team. Like you've gotten your stuff back together, you know. I knew I wasn't ready. But then I went to the Congo, then I ended up staying, then I kept going back and it took me a while to come back to fighting. But anyways, this quote was on kindness, was no act of kindness, no matter how small ever goes wasted. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, yeah, something resonated in me. Even if people are unkind to me, I want to be kind back. And, um, and I think I need the inverse cry. is true with anti-kindness. Mm. Not that it's wasted, but it, I don't think it just stops. Mm. You know, it's like the, the, that's slow, steady aggregation of every one of your actions. They all get filed away. Mm. You know, the body keeps the score. Mm. The zeitgeist keeps the score. Wow. Everything matters. Yeah. And maybe nothing at all. <laughs> That's crazy to think about. <laughs> Everything matters, but time doesn't exist. Nothing matters. <laughs> oh, I love it. But I, I, I think, I think at the end of the day, I used to think 
the scariest thing for me to go to bed at night when I'm older would be, or on my deathbed, um, would be knowing that I would have, could have, or should have done more like good that it would have helped more people that I, I mean, I think someone said once, like there's going to be these ghosts at the end of your life that, that can haunt you by, you know, the ideas that only you could have brought to life or the people that you could have only helped and Mm. things like that. And it, it really resonated with me where I was like, oof. Yeah. And so I think that I don't want people to hurt. Like I hurt that. I want them to know that they're, they have a lot of worth that every one of us is valuable. We're needed. And so if there is someone that's listening to this that might think, like I also think in some senses with with Brian and Marquise that, you know, in some ways it was brave. But at the same time. I by no means was trying to glorify her. No, no, no. I know know that. I know that. I understand. But I do want to say that, like, you never know what's right around the corner like the good things that could happen. Like literally went from the worst six months of my life to the best, most fulfilling, most rewarding, most love filled, passionate, purposeful six months of my life right after that. It's it's almost likely, at least if it's like anything like the stock market or the housing market or markets in general, the happiness market. Yeah. Happiness market. I like that. If you're in a dump, like there's a good chance it's a great time to invest. Right. You know, like a Wow things are about as low as they've ever been in history. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Quadruple down. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. I, I chose to go to a rehab. That wasn't a fun one mm. I, uh, or a nice one or a posh one. It was, you know, I could have gone to passages in Malibu or Betty Ford in LA or, or Scottsdale, the meadows, which those can be great places. Maybe they work for some people, but I knew I was in the biggest fight for my life, yeah. biggest fight of my life and that I needed real training, real coaching. And I needed no bullshit. I didn't need to necessarily wake up with green smoothies and massages and like, which are cool. We need to take care of ourselves. Yeah. That's a part of it. Addicts, addicts don't take care of themselves a lot. Um, but I kind of had that under, I I know how to take care of myself. I'm a pro athlete. It's just when I get into the active addiction, it's like, so I I basically chose to kind of go to a militaristic boot camp style, like 12 step completion program where they kicked out more people than they kept. And, uh, I was one of two guys that made it 90 days while I was there. Wow. And, uh, their, their whole goal and intention was to break me. Mm. Um, and I almost left three times, like seriously almost left. My mom was coming to get me one of the times and, uh, I decided to have her turn around and let me stay. And, uh, uh that was when I tore my calf. He worked on tore my calf playing wiffle ball at rehab <laughs> and, and, uh, it ripped up the back of my leg. The nurse didn't want to help me. They weren't going to give me any pain meds. I needed to go to the ER. They finally took me to the ER. They wouldn't let me get an MRI. They wouldn't let me talk to a doctor. They said, you got to choose, but what's more important to you, your leg or your life? And I go, well, why does it have to be one or the other? Like, can't I go get treatment on my leg, which is my livelihood since I'm a professional athlete and then come back? Like, well, let me go for an hour to get an MRI and come back. And it took them nine days to let me do that, 13 days to talk to a surgeon. And then they're like, well, you know. And anyways, I tried to rehab with nobody's help inside rehab for 90 days or about 80 days because I tore it about 10 days in. I'm going to bed with with uh, Tylenol and ibuprofen. I got to alternate Tylenol and ibuprofen at three inches torn off the wow. tendon. That's all I got. That's it. If I wanted ice, I had to go up the second 
I had to go up to the second floor and make my own bag of ice on crutches. Damn. I had to carry my bag myself. I had to make my plate myself and carry it to the table. I was having to learn how to swing a crutch with one arm in my armpit, like pinching it with my armpit and swinging it out and carrying a cup and plate. Anyways, I don't mean to get sympathy, but they were so fucking hard on me, man. And in many ways I resented them, but in other ways I realized like, you know, if I can, if I can learn to get through this, there's a Swahili proverb and the Swahili proverb says, if there is no enemy enemy within the opponent on the outside can do us no harm. I remember the third time I was about to leave because I was like, this is medically needing to be looked at. And like, it's my finances, it's my job. It's my, you know, and they're just like, Hey, basically if you want to be a pussy, which one of them guys did call me that, um, it would say you fake as fuck motherfucker. You mask wearing clown, you Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. There's so many of the guys. Yeah, bro. It was, it was wild. Um, but I decided to stay cause I knew that right on the other side of it was going to be something good. I was actually going to be free actually going to be free. And if there is no opponent, if there is no enemy within the opponent on the outside can do us no harm. Why do you think it is that some people's and we have to wrap up because you yeah. got, you got, you got places to be. I mean, I don't need to wrap up. I'm just, I'm just chilling. <laughs> no, we're good. Um, this is, this is my night. I'm going to, you know, I, don't I appreciate know you so much. Yeah. I appreciate you, man. Yeah. I really mean that. Um, what do you think it is with, like, I've heard some people, you don't get presented with any type of, if you're a person that's going through a lot of trials and tribulations, it's because God, universe, consciousness, whatever your belief system is felt as though you were able to carry that weight, you know? And it's like, I wonder why some people seem to, and this is another like big question that I you know, don't expect any kind of, you know, do go where, where anywhere you'd like. Um, have you ever thought of like why it is that you've so much weight has been placed on your bar in this life it seems like you've had a lot of incidences that are like very challenging we didn't get into you know any of them throughout there are a, a fraction of the stories that i've heard and you've yeah. also had a really illustrious beautiful amazing like gifted blessed life yeah like why do you think your life is so robust <laughs> <laughs> that's a great that's a funny way to put it a great way to put it i uh i don't know man i uh but I'm thankful for it. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for the challenges because in my experience, um, nothing truly worthwhile or the, maybe not truly, cause there's been a lot of things that just happened that are great, but the ones I worked for or worked through to get to those ended up being the most meaningful, the most worthwhile. Um, the things that had the challenges, like as a, as a fighter, like it's awesome to have the highlight real knockout where you come out, you don't get touched and you knock them out. The fans love that. So like that dude's a badass. That guy didn't even touch him. But I think the most meaningful fight for any real fighter is the one where he had to face adversity and overcome. Yeah. The one where he was looking like he was about to lose and something rose up in him to come back and win. And so maybe I could apply that to my life where I tried to give up twice and I'm still here. And, um, there's going to be a lot of victories that happen because I'm still here victories in my own life, but my goal is to make it a victory in other people's lives. Do you think there's a chance you've subconsciously chosen obstacles? Uh, 
potentially. Um, and maybe, and maybe even probably. Um, I don't think I chose addiction, even though you have to choose to to pick up the substance that first time. But once, I, I, I just don't act normal compared to other people. Like whenever, like it's that one's too many, but a thousand's not enough. Mm. And uh, I think I've put myself in challenging positions on purpose, whether it's climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, but doing it for a cause, doing it for a purpose. Yeah. Um, I normally had to the challenge. Like if someone says I can't do something, uh, like I was told I couldn't wrestle. I was told I couldn't be a fighter. I was told, you know, you can't write a book. You graduated 236 out of 237 in your high school. You're dumb. You're stupid. Hmm. You know, and uh, it's like, I'll do it. <laughs> and, uh, but I guess that's not really answering your question. Um, oh, it's, I mean, it's a weird question. It's just, yeah. I just sometimes I wonder, you know, I, I, th- I think you have to be very careful about what you focus on and manifest. And I think that the times I've gone dark or negative or depressed, I think I totally have manifested more shit, like yeah. more bad things coming because some people hard shit happens on repeat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and some people it's like, and I just, I just wonder if that's, is that just like destiny? Are they just there? Are they lucky? Is it a lucky charm thing? Are they blessed? Do they have, angels on their shoulders it's yeah. like well it's like i did, and i don't expect you to have an answer it's just a general well, some people account. do do self-sabotage and, and i remember um in addiction and I, I know we got to wrap up in a minute but in addiction it almost seemed like relapse happened this last time it was whenever something bad happened right like the divorce hmm. but it's seemingly before that it was almost after good things um, so it was almost like self-sabotage or I would just let my guard down and think like in the cycle of addiction, you start off with the first use, the allergy is set off to where then you go on your spree. And then after your spree, you're either broke as a joke or you're about to lose everything or you're, you're, you're out of the drugs or you're cashed out. Like, and then, and then you emerge remorseful. You feel terrible. If, uh, if you were hooked up to a lie detector and you would honestly make this firm resolution and you would pass. It goes from emerging remorseful to this firm resolution. I promise I'm never going to do this again. I promise to you, my wife, I promise to you, God, I promise to myself, I promise to my family, I'll never use again. They'll completely pass it. They will because they don't, if they really mean it, they, they, they will pass it. But all of a sudden they get restless, irritable, and discontented. I had to figure out what discontented mean. And the analogy I kind of came up with, or we talked about at rehab was like discontents. You're thirsty. Discontented is there's not enough water in the fucking world to quench the thirst that I have. Mm. And so whenever you get in this mental obsession of, I can use this just once and I can stop. I can, it can be one and done. I'm just, I'm going to prove it to myself. I'm going to prove it to them that I can drink like a normal person. I can smoke pot like a normal person. I can take pills like a normal person. Or I need it now because I have an injury and a surgery and the doctor says I'm going to have it. It's like you, you trick yourself and then you get back in that cycle again over and over and over. And it seemed like my big relapses besides this last one was oftentimes after like something good happened, like uh, a f- I want a fight. Or fighters and wrestlers, you, you, we have this terminology of like having a reset. I just need to reset. I worked hard. It's a long camp. I just need to reset, you know, one day, two days, and then right back on the horse, get back in the gym. 
But for me, I can never do it just one or two days because once that substance entered my body, it was like off to the races. And so I think um, I would let my guard down. I would want to reset. I would trick myself. The addict's mind will trick itself into killing itself slowly Mm. or quickly. And so um, I think that was my biggest problem is letting my guard down, tricking myself into I'll prove it to myself. Because with certain substances I could, or I'd just switch, right? You juggle. You're like, oh, I can't drink anymore. I'll smoke the, I'll switch the pot. I can't, but a pot, I'll switch to Xanax or Oxy and you just bounce from one thing to another. And then you think, oh, I nicked that one. So I can go to this one. Yeah. And it's like, oof, it's a, it's a dangerous game to play. I really appreciate you sharing all this, man. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for uh, your authenticity and taking me into places that I, I'm, I haven't been to the mountains that you've been to the top of, so I appreciate getting to share the vantage point with you. Wow. it's an incredible way to put it. Thank you. Mm. That honors me, and I'm humbled, and I appreciate it. It's a we privilege. Didn't, we didn't get to talk about any. Uh, we need to do it again if you're, yeah, open, if you're open to it. Game. To, no, <laughs> round, two, round two, round we'll be two. talking about ding, ding, ding. all of the pygmy business and yeah. all of the fighting and all yeah. of the done goddamn Rogan's podcast more than probably anybody Who's I guess other than like uh, Shab and Joey Diaz and, and people like Eddie that. Bravo or someone like that, yeah. Yeah. So there's like there's like a whole other side that I'd really like to dig into. Cool. But there's just so much depth in that side that we sure. that we went into. So I appreciate you being so open with sharing all Absolutely, that. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much. I've heard from a lot of people that I love that they love you. And so uh I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for your tribe that's here listening um hope that they keep coming back that they if they like this episode they share it or share any of the others and subscribe all that different stuff you know because you're a good dude never had uh, anyone do acro yoga with me like that pick me up so easily i'm normally picking up everyone else easily and you just had me up in the air that's a for, weird sensation being a huge was. guy getting picked up isn't it? yeah i'm used to doing it to everybody else absolutely that's my forte yeah, yeah and yeah. uh I've never had someone pick me up as easily and as long as you did. I was in the air for at least 10 minutes. For people listening out there, if you see a huge person, they'd really <laughs> like to be picked up. Even if they might not yeah. they might not say it. It's yeah. a gratifying sensation to be send, a large send person. Send them our way. They'll, they'll have a, a, a more <laughs> pleasurable experience with you than me. Is uh, there anything that you would leave people with if there was a person that was kind of feeling like they are in a really dark place and they do feel lonely and they feel disconnected and they feel... Um, apathetic and they feel like there's just like what's the point of this this game that we're in here um if they're in that place and they just it feels like you know just what's the point what's how do you communicate to a person like that you know i wish i could have talked to brian or um maybe christmas day or the 26th yeah. um, when he took his life or marquise two days ago because he took his life yesterday but i would tell him that there's purpose in your pain. There's purpose in your pain. You have a purpose. Um, you might not see it yet, but it's there. And it might just be this little spark or this little ember. But if you fan that flame, just like with the pygmies, they'll take a leaf or a plate and they'll waft a single ember. And then all of a sudden it becomes this huge flame. It's like, I feel like my purpose is to put love and compassion in action and to live to love and to fight for people and like, keep fighting. Don't give up. 
don't tap out. Come get a hug. Like, like just know that you're loved. Even if you don't feel it for yourself, someone else has it for you. You can borrow that for a little bit until it becomes your own or, or, or just, just know like when a kindness of a stranger happens, they might not know the battle that you're fighting, Yeah, but like, there's a reason they were kind to you. It's because you deserve that kindness. So please show it to yourself. You know? So if you live to love, I, I believe you'll love to live. So don't have your head on a swivel looking for the next paycheck or the next fancy car or the next somebody else, the next girl, the next guy, like have your head on a swivel, just looking to make a difference. How can I serve? How can I give? Who can I love? And as you start doing that, I feel like you start to have more purpose and you start to love yourself a little more because you find out, Hey, I'm pretty, I'm an all right guy. Yeah. And so, but I would say my, my word for this year is healing. And so that's what I would leave people with is, for me, this is a year to heal. Last year was a year to experience discipline. That didn't come till halfway through, but healing for me is three parts. Like I have to be healed by something greater than myself. I have to allow the divine God, source, creator to heal me. And if I connect a source, then I'm no longer a reservoir, I'm a river. And so I I think before I I would disconnect and disconnect, connect and disconnect, and I'd pour out and I'd empty out and I'd be empty and then I would be susceptible, I'd be vulnerable, I'd relapse. Or I'd go into depression or spiral. But if you just stay connected to source, it's like love can come in and love can go out and you're not going to run out of it. It's a never-ending thing. It's abundant. Like this pie just keeps getting bigger and bigger. You, You, my friend, or you, the person listening, you're a mighty rushing river. Just stay connected to source and allow that to heal you and then love yourself. So you got to take self self care is not selfish. So heal yourself. You know, that's, that's a priority. You got to take time for healing. Like we did before we even started this podcast, took time for ourselves to center, to ground. And then I would say the third thing. So let the divine heal you, you take responsibility in healing yourself and then heal others. That's the third one. Heal others help people heal because as those people heal, that, that allows you to heal. When you see people heal, you heal. And then I think healed people heal people. It's not your job to heal people, but you can assist, you can facilitate, you can encourage, you can empower someone in their healing journey. So healed people heal people. And you even just becoming more healed yourself just through attunement of being around each other, you naturally become a healer just by being in the room. If you do your work, you come into a room and we're, we're continually forming each other. You know, so I make a facial expression. You, you feel that inside. Mm -hmm. I make a postural pattern. I, 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 I emote a certain way I'm emoting into you. Yeah. And so it's like, it's like, it's always, you don't, I don't think that, that you need to be so much or I need to be so much in the doing of healing. You know, you can be in the being and that's, that's enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Be a human being, right? Like a human in the what semicolon or colon being. Yeah. Like, right. Like be a human and, and be happy with how you're being. Like, I guess I would say it is like, we aren't these, we aren't these 
human beings having a spiritual experience. We're actually like spiritual beings having a human experience. Totally. And so like, as we're in these meat suits, let's connect with that spirit inside of us and let that radiate and love others that are around us, but love ourselves. Don't neglect ourselves. Don't, don't reject love. Like I would, I would, I would deny it for myself. I'd give it away, but I'd, I'd like stiff arm it. Mm-hmm. I don't deserve it. I think I'd, I'd imagine you can only receive as much love as you love yourself. That's like the, the loving of yourself is what carves out the vessel to receive. Wow, that's pretty wild to think about because I was pretty good at loving, but I was very hard at receiving. Mm-hmm. So if I didn't allow it or if I didn't love myself, I could only, uh, yeah, I could only allow in what I would do for myself. Yeah. Now I'm starting to love myself. So I've, I've felt a, more love in my life than I ever have. Mm-hmm. It's pretty dope. I like it now. <laughs> the last thing that's not a question, it's just an interesting thing that I was thinking of. It's, it's so fascinating to think how many people are going through so many different experiences right now. And maybe we're all kind of living the same experience, one love, one consciousness, whatever. And it's you know, different nodes, a part of the same chart, whatever. But you were in your house April 5th mm-hmm. or in Mexico. It was in Mexico, yeah. You know, and I was at my place in Santa Monica and I was probably skateboarding or some fruity shit like that. You know, and you were out there surfing in your tights, surfing in my tights, <laughs> whacking off something, you know, just nonsensical, yeah. you know, and you're out there in that position of about to, to, you know, exit. And it's just such an interesting thing. Like how, you know, there's like the, the, you know, be kind because everyone's fighting a great war inside or something like that. Paraphrasing. Yeah. Have, you, have you heard that, that, yeah. that quote before? Do you know how to say it right? I think it's something like that. Be kind because everyone's, every, everyone's fighting inside. a certain a battle you don't know or something. Like battle that. inside, yeah. you know, and so it's like walking down the street. That day, you walked down the street and you looked like a normal guy. You've been on Rogan's podcast eight times and yeah. professional superstar stud yeah. UFC ultimate like fucking legend, badass, accomplished all the things you'd need at age thirty two or thirty three, whatever you were at that point. Thirty two at that point. Uh, birthday's coming up. Yeah. You know, like, so people seeing you, it would be, you. one would likely never think like, oh, he's, that's where he's going. And so it just, it just like strikes me as the, the value of just really weaving kindness into your every moment. I would say, I would say maybe this is some, a way for someone to start, a way for someone to start having that head on a swivel looking to make a difference. Yeah. Maybe someone right now has a name that pops into their head of someone they know that's facing a battle or just someone that you intuitively feel like someone, you know, someone you need to reach out to. Maybe it's a few people, but, um, you know, someone, you know, that's going through a tough time, just reach out, check in on them, see how they're doing. It could be a quick phone call if they're out of state, but if it's someone close by, like make a plan to go see them, get together. Mm. Um, I remember a friend told me that um, he called one of his friends because he knew what I went through. And he called one of his friends when the guy had gotten out his gun, loaded it, and was getting ready to kill himself. And he knew he had to call his friend. And he called his friend for some reason and said, how you doing? I want you to know I love you. That's basically all he said right off the bat. How you doing? I love you. I want you to know I love you. And the guy broke, started crying, said they had a gun in his hand, about to kill himself. Wow. You never know the impact you might have on somebody. And uh, so, yeah, and if you're in that place, reach out. 
There's suicide hotlines if you don't think you have anyone to call. But you do share with somebody. I remember I told my mom that I was thinking about hurting myself. And the look that it gave her, or that I did attempt suicide. I got a, I got a text from her today. Maybe we can end with that. But she had texted me. Because I let her know about um, about my friend that took his life. And she goes, that is so heartbreaking about Marquise. I cannot imagine what Jim and Susan are going through. I've not called them yet because I figured yesterday was crazy for them. And I'm at a meeting. Finish at three, I'll call them this afternoon. I don't even know what to say other than that I love them. and I'm so sorry. And then she turns it to me. Are you sure you are okay? I love you and I miss you. I don't understand suicide because I've never felt that way. I pray that you are good and that you will never be in a place to take your own life. I love you. I want you to know I love you so much. I miss you. And then she goes into, she's going to come up to the funeral with me. Um, But you know, like she took a moment to acknowledge them and their pain, wanting to be there for them. But then she knows that me and my pain and what I've gone through and how I've attempted suicide twice, she wants to check in on me too. You know, how are you really doing? And I was able to tell her, you know, um, I was able to tell her, I love you, exclamation point, I miss you. I will never be in that state of mind again. I have experienced, and then all caps, I've experienced healing. I love you. I said, I would just call them to say that you love them. Be sweet, be strong, be sensitive, be kind, be love. That's who my mom is, and that's who they need right now. I love you. I'm glad that you're here, man. Me too. I'm glad that you're here. Um, all right, now that we're both crying like a bunch <laughs> of pansy asses, um, I guess what do we do from here? Wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> Wrap it up. You hear that? Safe sex, boys and girls. Safe Wrap sex. it up. Eggplants, I do love you, man. Eggplant, water splash yeah. side. That's right. Peach emoji. I love you too, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to the future of it, whatever yeah. that looks like. Yeah. I'm excited to hang out with you more. For sure, man. Um, where should people go? How can they support the the Fight for the Forgotten? How yeah. do they support people that need water? How do they support sure. our, you? Our, our hub support? is fightfortheforgotten.org. Um, and then we have an Instagram fight for the forgotten. We need to keep up with that more, but it's, it's still there. And then my Instagram is just the big pygmy. Mm. I didn't get into that, but I used to be the Viking cause of how I look. Yep. Um, and I fight like a Viking, but the pygmies name me Efeosa Mabutimangbo. And so <laughs> Efeosa means the man who loves us. And I love that one. But, uh, Mabutimangbo, that means just simply the big pygmy. So that's great. Yeah, so if you do the big and then P, I should be the first thing that pops I up. But it's P-Y- like that. I covet, I covet your pygmy name. There you go. You got to work on that. You the gotta, Bible says don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Brother, I love you, man. I love you. Um, all right. And, and if people went to the fight for the forgotten, what would they be supporting? Um, they'd be supporting why, why land, water and food initiatives. Uh, we've gotten back over 3000 acres of land for the pygmies in their name. Um, and in Uganda right now we're building, so we drill wells, um, and, but we're starting our first home project where we're building 32 homes for 32 families that have never owned a home. They're evicted from the rainforest that they've always lived in. 
they were the protectors of the forest, the people of the forest. They only took what they needed and they never poached, but they were evicted. So they were put on less than one acre of land uh, behind a slum. Literally human raw sewage was flowing through it and they'd have to pick up their fire and move it and got sick. They would die. They gave them nowhere to bury the land. So they were burying their dead right on top of the one acre of land they had to live on. And so they're walking over mounds of their dead. We just bought them 48 new acres of land because of Dustin Poirier. Uh, we've drilled some new wells out there. Uh, they uh, have three little farms started there. And um, Didn't McGregor donate as well? Yes, uh, but he donated straight to Dustin. Oh, uh, okay. So, and it was dope. It was awesome. And then, um, uh, uh, what was I going to say? But the 32 homes will have, uh, there'll be two bedroom homes at least. They'll have a dining room, a kitchen. They'll have a back patio, a front patio. They'll have French drains to make sure there's no flooding. They'll... Um, be able to actually have a home for the first time and they'll have tapped water to it, which is so crazy for them. Mm. Uh, and so we have a lot to be grateful for. And if people wanted to donate to that, they could enter a raffle for Buffalo trace whiskey and they could win the Disney world experience of, uh, the whiskey lover. It's only for 15 more days. So I don't know if this will come out in that time. And then, uh, uh, but if it does, um, you know, they could win a dope raffle. I'll be there with them in victory, walking in freedom as they taste whiskey. I'll be enjoying it right. watching. And, uh, then, um, yeah, other than that, they can donate straight to fight for the forgotten. It goes into our general fund. We decide where the most need is. We are also doing bullying and suicide prevention here in the States. We do that mainly through martial arts academies, but we've been in over a hundred schools. We're developing curriculums for schools and, um, we might do something for, for Brian Sykes family and you know, maybe Jim and Susan, my second parents who just lost their son. Incredible, man. Yeah. All right. Thank you you. got to get to bed. Yeah, you too. You want to cuddle? We should have a cuddle. Touch is my first primary love language. We'll do a cuddle puddle. We'll do a little cuddle puddle. Um, and uh, thank you all so much for tuning in. Yeah. Over now. Hey, don't forget to send your Overcome stories to overcomepodcast at gmail.com. And also, rate, review, subscribe, and follow Overcome with Justin Wren.